Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. A desire to be still and be patient and allow the Lord to teach and guide and direct. Take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. The title of today's sermon is A Biblical Understanding on Divorce, Part 1 of 10. <laughs> Let me read our text that comprises our passage, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. Please follow along as I read the inspired, written, and holy word of God. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And she herself divorces her husband and marries another man. She is committing adultery. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for the word. Thank you for the joy it is to, to know your, your truth and desiring to follow. We know it is the standard. It is holy. It is pure. And is right. And because of that, we come to a subject that has infiltrated our lives, divorce and remarriage. Our desire, Lord, is to understand exactly what you're saying here, wanting to grasp its truth, understanding the standard of holiness that you put forth. So teach us. Holy Spirit, teach us on how to apply this word. Be with your servant, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon is, is a start of a series on the biblical look at divorce. And the Bible has much to say about this issue. 
Yet, when you look at its placing and the inspiration of the Spirit given to Mark to write this letter, this kind of seems odd to be placed here. Why did Mark begin this chapter with this subject? We are literally one chapter away in chapter 11 where Jesus will have the triumphal entry and he is heading to the cross. To some degree, this passage seems out of place. This passage falls on the heels of some of the greatest passages of what we've been studying and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, to be a true disciple of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8 and 9, we have seen Jesus teach much about discipleship. Jesus has given us such truth that to be a true disciple of him, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. A true disciple walks by faith and not by sight. A true disciple prays to the one who can do all things. A true disciple considers the cost of following Jesus and forsakes it all to follow him. A true disciple will be last and servant of all. I mean, we have been riding wave after wave of truth of what it means to follow Jesus, and then bam, chapter 10 hits, and the Lord teaches us on this issue of divorce and marriage. It seems out of place, but you and I both know that God, who is the inspired author of this gospel, and Jesus, who is God himself, teaching us about divorce, that nothing is out of place with him. God rightly puts this passage on the heels of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus because, and this is so important, because the truth of the matter is your marriage is a powerful witness of the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. What the world needs more of, and more than ever, is godly marriages. Notice I didn't say perfect marriages, but godly marriages. That puts Jesus Christ on display in how you live and go about life. It only makes sense that if two disciples of Jesus would be joined in marriage, that their marriage would then reflect what it means to follow Jesus. And you got to believe that such godly living that honors Christ will be noticed. And people will be asking, why does their marriage seem so peaceful? Why are they so in touch with one another? One of the greatest compliments I ever got concerning me and my bride, we were about married at 10 years into our marriage, and we were out on a date, and we were just enthralled with one another. Had this old couple come up, and he goes, oh, look at this cute honeymoon couple. You know, they thought we were just married. Until which I said, listen, we've been married for 10 years. He goes, no way. He goes, how in the world do you keep that flame alive? And I said, well, Jesus, right? Jesus being front and center is the answer of what true discipleship looks like when two people become married. God has never intended that your discipleship or your following of Jesus would be outside of those whom you marry. 
And what a joy it is to see two people who would become one and both love and follow and are committed to Jesus and put that commitment on display for the world to see. So it does fit well. And we will see more why this is so important when we dive into this passage. But knowing the subject at hand, I would be wise to give you some pastoral comments before we start. These are, are in essence, shepherding comments. I want you to understand a few things about what's going on here. For one, I'm aware that divorce affects everybody in this room at some level. Either you have experienced divorce first at hand, or you know someone who went through a divorce. I'm aware of that. And I want to be sensitive to that. And I want to shepherd you in that. Know this. I'm not going to throw any biblical rocks at you, right? The truth will will be hard-hitting in itself, but understand there's no agenda from your pastor. He is trying to be faithful to what the Word of God says. But it's important that we understand biblically exactly what Jesus taught on divorce. It makes sense, right? And this is important. What Jesus is doing here is presenting us with a biblical understanding of divorce that he has given us the ultimate ideal. This is the holiness standard. The ultimate act of holiness and how to go about marriage. I mean, we wouldn't expect anything less, would we not, from God and his truth? And so Jesus is going to give us the biblical standard on divorce and marriage. And it would be wise for us to buckle up and take it in. Two. Jesus is going to say some hard things. And it's important to remind ourselves that God's word aims. Now get this. Every time God's word is preached, it aims at producing holiness in your life. Instead of protecting and coddling your feelings. I don't know about you, but every time I dive into the scripture, it steps on my soul. And it should yours as well. Third. Not only is God serious about his commands and his truth, but remember that God graciously gives, and this is so important, God graciously gives grace to those who sin. You understand that? And divorce is not beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. Fourth, this is more of an exhortation. I pray that if you're married here this morning or listening online and you're in the midst of a troubling marriage and maybe even talking about divorce, your pastor begs you, begs you to not go through with it. Listen, God's word is sufficient. He is the healer of our souls. He is able to take the train wreck that we maybe have caused in marriage and and right the ship. He is able to hear your marriage. By the way, your pastoral staff is is willing to sit down with any couple that, that is going through situations and to walk with you no matter how long it takes for you to get right with one another and with the Lord. Another exhortation. If you are yet to be married, 
I want you to see the importance of what you're committing to when you do get married. I want you to understand this marriage covenant and that you would never, ever entertain the thought of divorce in your future marriage. That you would eliminate the thought of divorce from your minds. In other words, just don't go there. Just don't go there. Simply put, your pastor is saying that there is no backdoor exit when it comes to God unifying a husband and a wife in their hearts. Hang in there. Trust Christ. His truth will transform you. God can and will do radical things in your lives if we would just trust and obey him. Amen? Fifth. Now, you're likely going to say, especially in light of how much time I have left, after today's sermon that you have more questions than answers. And all I'm asking you is to be patient with me as we go through this series, Lord willing. Understand this is part one of part one. In other words, we're only going to get through the first point. More truth will come, and hopefully at the end of the series, your questions will have biblical answers. So try to be patient with your pastor. We will get to Matthew chapter 5. We'll talk about the exception clause in Matthew chapter 19. We'll talk about the abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll get there, Lord willing, right? Time-wise. Those passages will, will answer most of our questions. And if not, by all means, send Nate a message and he'll answer them for you. Where did he go? (laughs) By the way, as a side note, you know, a handful of us men are are heading to the Shepherds Conference this week, and I remember sitting at a Shepherds Conference once, and John MacArthur was being interviewed, and he was asked this question I thought was pretty striking. And of course, as there's so much in that guy's mind, a man of God who loves the Lord, who has lived a long life, who has shepherded many who have studied the word of God. The question was this, what is the one truth that you would want more revelation or biblical truth on? Now, that's a, that's a big open-ended question, isn't it? I was thinking, well, I got a few questions. Maybe this is what he's going to hit. You know what his answer was? His desire was to have more revelation or biblical truth on divorce and remarriage, which tells you how complex this issue is and how it comes together. So I know that even after our series, we will still have some questions, but may we land on what is true according to what the scriptures do say. That's the end of my pastoral comments, five of them. I want you to be mindful of those things as we go through this. Now, as we dive in, that's the sermon before the sermon, right? Now as we dive into our text, it comes. we come to... Marriage and divorce. And what's interesting to me when you observe the world, and even maybe even inside the church, today's marriages are desiring to please self over others. Now, this is 
pretty profound when you think about this, especially in light of what Jesus has been telling us in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9, that you are to be about others. And yet often we see marriage with the focus of whatever pleases me and what I desire to do for I want to be happy. Self-fulfillment, the idea that I want to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I've heard that. Have you heard that? Words and phrases that fill many Christians' hearts even today. I mean, we would expect those type of words from the world, would we not? Which is consumed by self, but I'm shocked when it comes to the church. By the way, being happy is never in the scriptures. What is in the scriptures is trust and obedience, being faithful. Are blessings following that? Absolutely. Can we be happy in Christ? Absolutely. But there's no question that the pursuit of self-fulfillment is very high on today's culture. I mean, they are buzzwords that are currently sweeping the minds and the hearts of people today. So immersed is our culture in, in desiring to have self as the center that the commitment to life's most sacred institution which God ordained in marriage has often made a conditional question. Does my spouse make me happy? Am I getting fulfillment from them? Is my wife or husband making me happy? By the way, there are are supposedly Christian books out there that, that are being written on this approach that God does want you to be happy, and that's his sole desire, number one thing in your life. There's a book by John Adam and Nancy Williamson, and they write in their book, Divorce. Listen to this title, How and When to Let Go. That's a scary title. They say, and I quote them here, your marriage can wear you out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. And then he says this, letting go of your marriage. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph, end quote. That is a sad statement especially in line of what God's word says about being fixed in this covenant and being, being faithful in that covenant. And sadly, such thinking has infiltrated the church 
and reduces the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with that one theological thread that God desires for me to be happy no matter what the word of God says. I was first introduced to such ideology as a Christian young man at the age of 19 when I heard a popular Christian singer, Amy Grant, wanting to divorce her husband, Gary Chapman. The bottom line, this article came out with the reasons why she wanted to divorce her husband. The reason that Grant gave the world in this article was that she was just not, quote-unquote, happy. I mean, what a tragedy. The elevation of one's own self-fulfillment as, as the ultimate good. Listen, beloved, it reduces God and his authority in your life. For that matter, it makes God's word a, an optional playbook that you can just dive into whenever you want to, but yet never cross your, your desires or your feelings. Instead of seeing the Bible as its truth about God, people with these ideas see the Bible about them and wanting them to be happy. The inerrant and holy word of God is replaced with a humanistic value of self. Can I just burst a bubble here? God is not sitting in heaven thinking about you and what he can do to make you happy. What he is looking for is obedience among his people. Samuel said, God desires obedience more than actual worship. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. You can see it on the screen. It reads there, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Obedience. God desires. And if we are sold out, born-again believers, then God's word, God's truth, must direct every decision of our life. I mean, you see how radical this is? When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you submit not only your soul and your heart to him, but everything that you once thought was the right theology is now replaced with godly theology. We are sold out to Christ. We must submit to what his word says. Why is that? Because we understand the ways of men, do we not? Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there is a way that what seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The path to fulfillment and being happy is Jesus, and, and biblically speaking, is obedience to Christ and to his word. It's about losing one's life and being crucified with Christ and surrendering to Christ. It's about putting others first. Get this, especially in your marriage. There's a verse in Ephesians chapter 4 that is so powerful that guides the disciple of Christ in his relationships, especially in his marriage relationship. It reads there in verse 32 of Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, 
just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I mean, that is such a great reminder and a memory verse to, to apply to your soul, understanding that we all need grace and we need to allow forgiveness to manifest itself. That his grace that has been extended, that we have been forgiven, would be extended to others. And how so much in a marriage that we need to have this grace and forgiveness being flowing back to one another. And then when you think about what Christ has done for the church, his bride, the church. Christ has forgiven the church much. You understand that, right? I think of the foolish talk that we do, the laziness, the idolatry, and various other common everyday sins of the flesh that God is very forgiving of us. And applying that truth, how can we as men refuse to forgive our wives if we've received forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ ourselves? Or why can't Christian wives forgive their husbands of wrongdoing and sins in marriage if they have been the recipients of God's mercy? I mean, this is heavy stuff. It hits our hearts. But yet it calls us to obey and understand. And if anything, it goes after our selfish desires and it submits it to what the biblical word says. And so Jesus continues to unfold what a true disciple looks and acts like. A question arises on divorce. And in light of that question, Jesus gives us, and here's the proposition statement, here's what you want to understand about this text, is that Jesus gives us three critical realities about divorce. Okay? He's going to lay it out for us. They're there in your outline. The first critical reality that Christ wants us to understand is that people will justify divorce. And this kind of sets up the passage for us in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1. It says it reads, Getting up, he, speaking about Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea. And beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him again, and according to his, own, according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. As we began, Jesus, we know that Jesus and his disciples, they're heading to Jerusalem. They are leaving Capernaum. Verse 1 tells us that he lands in the area of Judea, beyond, notice it says beyond the Jordan, which most likely is on just east of the Jordan. You've got to say, well, why is that east? If you know anything about your church history and knowing the map in that area in Jesus' day, on the other side of the Jordan River was King Herod and his palaces. You can imagine, and this is going to play vital in, in the, the schemes of the Pharisees, of why Jesus would be on the other side of the Jordan River. It was safer. This area would be called Priera. And Mark continues to give us context by saying the crowds gathered around him again. He's on a track. People are following him to Jerusalem, and yet people are coming to him where he stops. And I like how Mark puts it. The people are gathering around him again. 
I mean, this was commonplace. Everywhere Jesus went, people were there. And yet he was kind in his, his desire in doing exactly what the Messiah would do. He would begin to teach. It was his custom to teach. As he unfolded the kingdom of God, as he gave them clarity about what it means to be a true disciple of him. And get this, he gives rational truth. He's stirring their minds and not their emotions. He's given them hard biblical truth that will affect their living and their mindset. He is aiming at their thinking and not their feelings. Verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, and get this, this is important, testing him. The good old Pharisees, right? We've seen them before. Coming once again to test Jesus. We know that they had evil intentions. Every time they interacted with Christ, they are are just fed up with him. All the people are following him instead of them. They, of course, saw him as a threat. They want to be away with him. They're trying to scheme how to kill him. They want to trap Jesus in some sort of heresy so they can turn the crowd against him and discredit his teachings. They were a group of religious theological conservatives. We can call them that. However, though they would have conservative, pharisaical, legalistic ideas, they were very liberal in how they lived. They were often called by Jesus a a whitewashed tomb, dead on the inside, all for show, nothing being transforming in their life. They were there to test him. Verse 2 goes on to say, and begin to question him whether it was lawful. And when you see that word lawful, you think of Moses, but also think about biblical. Whether it is biblical for a man to divorce a wife. Remember, they had evil intentions. They weren't coming up wanting to learn. They weren't just curious about this idea. They were testing him. By the way, they already knew Jesus' stance on this. We'll get to that in just a second. Like I say, at first glance, the question seems harmless, but it lies, what lies underneath the heart is what brings out the venom in the question. By the way, remember when we were studying John the Baptist and John, John, or, uh, John in Mark chapter 6? We looked at that in verse 17 through 29. That was so many months ago. But John the Baptist, to remind you, had spoken out. Remember, he's spoken out publicly about the immorality and the divorce of King Herod. What was the end result of John the Baptist? As he took a a godly stance in calling out sin, no matter what position they found themselves in, he lost his head. He was beheaded. By the way, this would be public news. People would have known that that this had happened and and what was going on. You can better believe it that that even the Pharisees would be tight-lipped when it came about the king's relationship that was ungodly. Everyone knew about this. Now get this, why is that so important? How, he, Jesus is literally only a few miles away from Herod. He's over there in his palace. 
And you can see what's happening with the Pharisees. They're trying to trap Jesus, wanting the same result that happened to John the Baptist so that Jesus' head could fall off. All they needed to do was to have him proclaim about the same stance about his immorality. And surely enough, King Herod would do their dirty work. Their thinking is that if they can get Jesus to say divorce is wrong, then they might pit Jesus against Herod. They wanted Jesus' head lopped off. Now, that wasn't the only tension that the Pharisees had with this question. They knew this was a hot topic. If you look into the rabbinic teachings of the Pharisees, you you will find that there was two camps about the subject on divorce. You had one rabbi that taught that there was no such thing as divorce and that Moses never permitted it. By the way, he didn't have much of a following However, there was a rabbi, Hael, which most of the Pharisees followed, said that you can divorce your wife for any reason at all. And that found great approval. By the way, the Mishnah records for us his teachings. If you wanted to go there, let me just dig some of this out for you. He says you can divorce your wife for any reason at all. By the way, this was a one-way divorce. Never could a woman ever divorce her husband. Listen to some of the examples. He says, you could divorce your wife for burning dinner. You could divorce your wife for putting too much salt in the food. You could divorce your wife for speaking to another man. You could divorce your wife for her refusing your control over her. You could divorce your wife because she said something about his mother-in-law or his mother, her mother-in-law. Can you imagine that? You could divorce your wife for, for her being infertile. You could divorce your wife for having daughters and not sons. And you also could divorce your wife for simply finding another woman who was prettier than her. This is the view that the Pharisees taught as they bring this question to Jesus. Now, to add all of this, Jesus had already taught his view on divorce. I already mentioned that. He he taught on this subject on the Sermon on the Mount, in which we would jump out of Mark to find that text. We'd go to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus clearly taught in their hearing his view on divorce. Verse 31, 32 says it. It says, it was said, Jesus speaking here, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, and we'll find that out to be adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Pharisees knew his teaching. They already had this in their mind, and they were in the perfect place. This is the perfect storm in their minds to trap Jesus. Herod is there. We already know what he's going to say. We just need it publicly. There will be an outcry. 
They'll send for Jesus and they will cut off his head. And then Jesus speaks up in verse 3. He responds. And notice that he doesn't necessarily answer them, but he answers a question with a question. Verse 3, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Turns the tables on him. Jesus saying, what did the law teach you concerning divorce? And so they answer back, verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They are accepting the ideas of, of this rabbi that we can pretty much divorce on any, any matter. By the way, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and you can write that down. I want to put it up on the screen here shortly. But Moses is talking on the plains of Moab as the people were going into the promised land. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That is key. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and, and sends her out from this house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Or if the later husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin in the land which the Lord your God gives you an inheritance. Of course, they have in their minds, figured out and interpreted what indecency means for them. They, they said it includes anything that, that doesn't make us happy. But what is this Hebrew word for indecency? What does it mean? It, it literally just means uncleanness. And if you were to take in the scope of scriptures and, and near context, when you see another word used the same way, uh, used in context, and, and maybe in a different context, but it's used, you can get some clear under, understanding of exactly what's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, you find the same word, Hebrew word for indecency used. And it was used there as the waste that comes from a woman's cycle. She was unclean. It's important to understand that the word indecency in Deuteronomy 24 is not the same word. The Hebrew has a word for adultery, by the way. And Moses doesn't use it here. He uses the word uncleanness. For that matter, when you study the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, you, you know that adultery in Israel's time didn't result in divorce. What did it result in? Death. Death. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22. It says there, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Pretty clear cut. If Moses wanted the word indecency to mean adultery, he would have used that word in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So what is this 
indecency. What is it about? We don't have a lot of clarity. We know that it is something that is unclean. We know that it's not adultery, but it's got to be something wicked or evil. Nevertheless, whatever that means, the husband could issue a certificate of divorce, in so doing, send her away. And if he remarries or she remarries, Scripture is very clear they are committing adultery. Now, you might be saying, but hey, he divorced her. So why is she sinning in her new marriage? Well, listen, the point of Deuteronomy chapter 24 is this. If you divorce your wife and she remarries, God sees this as adultery. This is his standard. This is his holiness. This is the ultimate holiness. Why? Because he's very serious about the covenant of marriage where two shall become one and that they remain until death do us part. And so the Pharisees get a hold of this idea of indecency in chapter 24, Deuteronomy, and they define it the way that they want it to be defined. They justified what they wanted in their selfish motives and desired to divorce their wife for any cause and then in turn call it righteous. By the way, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's, there's no command there. There's, there's no imperative there. Uh, I think it's because in light of what Jesus can do in restoring, even as we look at the exception clauses in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and 19, that there's this, there's this grace and this ability for Christ to heal even when the most horrific sin can be committed within a marriage. Nowhere in the Mosaic law is there ever a command to get a divorce. So here's the issue. The liberal Pharisees had twisted Deuteronomy chapter 24 to teach that divorce was legitimate for any matter. Why? Because they were unhappy. They did what so many people often do today with their Bible. They, they found a detail in the scriptures and they changed its meaning and amplified its application, and then taught it as doctrine and, and, and called it righteous. How often do we ourselves justify our sins and then call it righteous? I mean, it makes sense if the heart desires something so bad, they will force the Bible to support their actions. Now, just a little foretaste of what's coming. There's only two reasons for divorce in the New Testament. Jesus gives one of them. I alluded to it already in Matthew chapter 5 and verse Matthew chapter 19. And that was for the case of adultery. And you can say, that, now that's pretty radical, and we'll talk more about this in a couple weeks. But you think about what's happening here, what Jesus is doing, what was permitted, what was not permitted in the Old Testament, so much so that if you did do it, you died. Jesus now says there's an exception, and it won't cost you your life. I think part of that is because of the grace of God. I think part of that is because of what he will tell the Pharisees of the hardness of their hearts. 
The second reason is from the Apostle Paul. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is the whole issue of abandonment from an unbelieving spouse, a husband or a wife. Much to be coming. So hang tight with me. I think this is a good place to stop before we dive into the next point. You can pick up the next point by looking at it, and I would encourage you to start reading those verses and doing some of your own study. But the point is that God has provisionally allowed some divorce because of a hard heart. So what's our takeaway from one point and from the expectation from your pastor? Listen, in a general way, what sin do we like more than being obedient to the word of God? What sin do I want to protect and make it biblical and fit in the confines of my Christianity instead of simply obeying what the truth says? I think our biggest takeaway from the text and looking at how the Pharisees approached Jesus is that may we stop justifying our sin and simply adhere to the word of God. Amen? Listen, the old song goes this way, right? Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. If you want to be happy, trust Christ. Trust his word. Know that it is sufficient for you. Also know this, however, beloved, after hearing what is going on in this text and finding yourself on the other side of that and maybe even in a divorce or coming out of divorce, or listen, his grace is sufficient. And, and he's, he, he desires to, to restore you and, and build you up. Understand that, that Christ doesn't just kick you to the side. His grace is sufficient for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning tackling a hard text because we exposit the scriptures. We will come across texts that maybe are not culturally acceptable, that maybe step on our, our hearts. Lord, you, you know that we do not. You called the preacher to preach. You called the, the people to hear and to study and to know and to embrace the truth. And so may we see that in light of how you're giving us, desiring for the true disciple of Jesus Christ to stick firm in their marriage, to hold off the thoughts of the evil one and the temptations to sabotage a godly marriage. We thank you for your grace and forgiveness, knowing that we, in turn, need to extend that to others, especially in our marriages. So, Father, help us as we go about this. You never condone sin. You always point it out. You always point to the standard of what is right and what is holy. And our heart's desire is to follow and trust in what the Word of God says. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Thank you for the fact that you can clean us up, that you can continue to use us for your kingdom in light of what's happened, maybe in the past. That's how gracious you are. That's how good you are. 
So, Father, may we embrace and understand, and may we continue to trust and obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll, we'll close in song. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.